We've been in Acts, and uh, we're going to use this this morning for uh, the framework for our text, and the framework for the point of the accusation. So, um, if you have your Bible, we'll be in Acts chapter 2, and I'll read it to you. So this morning, you're going to have to either flip around or just trust that I'm uh, reading to you accurately. And uh, so I, I wonder if uh, whatever you wrote down on this piece of paper, uh, you don't even have to look at it to know what you wrote, and you probably uh, wanted to make sure that nobody else saw it. And, uh, and, if, and if somebody even handed it to you, and it was in your own handwriting, and they, says, they said to you, is this you? Did you do this? You would likely want to deny it, or probably try to deny it. And so we're like, what is that? What is that uh, in us, and, and, um, and how does that connect to the beauty and the truth of the crucifixion and the resurrection? And that's what I want to get at um, this morning. So um, the, the, the first part of this, we have to, um, we kind of got to hear the accusation, the charge against us, and, um, and then I want to ask, is it true? And uh, you may at first want to say, well, that's not, that's not true. To, to prove you otherwise. So here it is in Acts chapter 2. This is in the midst of uh, Peter's speech at uh, Pentecost. And um, I'm going to be reading in verse uh, 22. And I'll read uh, just a few verses here. Peter says to the crowd that had gathered, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did, through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus. So not to be confused with another, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. So far, so good. This was God's plan that he would be delivered up. It was foreknown by God that this would happen. But then he says this, the piercing words, you crucified and killed. That's not a throwaway statement. And he doesn't mean the proverbial collective you. He means the very personal you. You crucified and killed. And then the, the means by which that was accomplished by, was by the hands of lawless men. They're meaning the Gentiles and the Romans. But then he says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So that's the... Uh, that's the charge this morning. And in case you're uh, wondering, he also says it again uh, later on, that it was, it was you who crucified the Christ. So the, the, the accusation this morning that falls by way of testimony of Peter and now the scripture for those that were gathered that morning to the Jews and now to you is that you, you crucified Jesus. You would probably want to distance yourself from that kind of a statement. I, I didn't know such thing. I wasn't there. That was quite a long time ago. And so the tension of this statement is that Peter means it um, not to condemn us, but actually um, as, as an important point of identification. And so with that, with that kind of being the overarching context for the, the morning, um, I want to just kind of lay that out there. And then we'll talk about some other truths about accusations and sort of the judicial aspect of the cross. And then we'll come full circle hopefully to something that resembles redemption and freedom. So let's pray. Fathers, we turn our hearts this morning to your word. 
And I just ask that you would um, cut through some of the, uh, the distractions that uh, we've already had this morning with various uh, tech difficulties and whatever weight and circumstances may have uh, caused us to drag ourselves here. God, I just pray that you would speak now in your word, by your word, through your word, to us. Um, we need the truth to pierce through um, all of the, the circumstances. We need the, 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 the truth to pierce through all of the fodder of the world that tells us other messages. And so I ask this morning that it would be um, with clarity this morning that you would um, show us what you've done and uh, the beauty and the meaning of how we find freedom in these kinds of uh, identifications and these kinds of accusations. So Father, I just pray that you would increase now and that I would decrease, that it would be your words, not mine. And uh, Father, that you would equip all those that are hearing this morning with um, your spirit so that they might hear, discern the truth that you would want to speak. So we ask this all in Jesus' name. So, I mean, by and large, uh, by human condition, it is our more or less goal to avoid responsibility for just about everything, right? Um, the, the less responsibility that we incur, um, the less likely it is that we get blamed for something going wrong, right? And, uh, and even when things go wrong, or we do something that we know is wrong, um, we, we spend a lot of uh, mental effort and uh, emotional expense trying to justify ourselves. Okay? And we do that uh, a lot of different ways. We either do it by like, minimizing what happened. Uh, we say, that wasn't that big of a deal. Or we, we use um, the work of comparison to look at all the other people out there. So as long as there's murderers and rapists out there, I'm doing pretty good. And so, 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 we, so, we, so we sort of uh, assuage what we know in our hearts to be our own responsibility, our own guilt, and um, for, for this um, supposed um, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow where you're, you're not actually responsible and you're sort of an innocent person that's just kind of walking through life circumstances and you, you bump off things from time to time, but you're not really one of those that, that, that bad of a person, right? And so that's one way we do it. And the other way is just um, by, by uh, convincing ourselves that if we fix the thing that has gone wrong, that will, that will sort of undo, it will, it will pile enough in the good side to sort of negate what was in the bad side. If you can think about it in the sense of scales and uh, a balance, if you will. And, and we know that we failed or faltered or done something that we ought not have done. Um, and so we say, yes, I know, but I can probably fix that. And so if you just give it enough time and enough willpower, I, I will be able to undo that, that wrong. And so, so that's the other way we try to, um, we kind of kick the can down the road and we sort of want to push off uh, the idea of guilt. Are you, are you at least identifying with us? I mean, if, if uh, I, I don't think I should have to press very hard. I think we can all know that when something goes wrong and somebody goes, hey, did you do this? And you did it. And you're like, yeah, but, and then we immediately have an excuse, Right. 
So if your first reaction is not like, yeah, I did it, and I'm such a bad person, some of us are like that, and you just have a super soft conscience, and I'm, that's a great thing to have. Um, but most of us are, are hardened in a few ways, okay? Uh, we just have enough things that we know that, you know, it's just like, why this too? And I think that's sort of our, our attitude. And um, I want you to hear this morning that, um, that there is a constant court proceeding beyond your eyes. There is a divine, spiritual, judicial system at work behind the scenes, constantly happening in heaven. We get a few peeks into this um, through scripture. Um, it, it first kind of like strikes us in the book of Job. Uh, Job's actually the oldest book in the Bible, even though it falls a little later. If you didn't know that, Job is recorded before all the events of the Exodus and all that. So, um, so here's the deal. We get this picture where um, God is having a council of uh, beings, of spiritual beings in heaven. And uh, one of those is, is Satan himself. And he's um, called the adversary, or the accuser. And he comes and he says, have you considered, have you considered Job, right? And so they kind of have this dialogue and there's a back and forth. And so uh, if you're not familiar with the book, um, not, not light Sunday reading, um, heavy book, lots of difficult um, things to understand. But what I want you to see is that um, throughout Scripture, um, God, is not, God is not bound by, but He has chosen to use judicial things for us to understand His holiness and the repercussions for how we live. And so um, one aspect of that judicial system all, is, is sainthood. So you would think Satan's going around and he's doing bad things and he's the bad guy. And really what's, what, what the picture that uh, Scripture draws is that we're running around doing bad things and Satan's helping us and pointing it out. So a little flip, a little flip on the head, like you're the bad guy, right? You know, it's the Scooby-Doo moment where they uncover, you pull the mask off and it's like, oh, it's that guy? And it's you. Like, oh, it was me. Okay, so, um, so, so there's, there's one beacon too. But then... Um, I want to read to you Revelation chapter 12 in verse 10. So it's talking about, um, here again, the accuser Satan. And it says this, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. So he, he's talking about a, a post-resurrection, a post-ascension Jesus, and um, that he's, he's seated and the authority uh, belongs in heaven. And that's good. And he says, because of that, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That is referring to Satan. And it says that he accuses them night and day before God. That's the, the saints. That's you and I, uh, just the people of God. And it says that, that Satan's activity right now on the earth is walking around accusing the brethren night and day before God. So the, the picture is, is, um, is not necessarily Satan on your shoulder accusing you of things. It's Satan in the world pointing out to God the things that you are, in fact, doing. Are you, are you, seeing, are you seeing the picture here? So, so think of Satan now as the prosecuting attorney. And he's bringing a case against you before God. And he's got a good case. Because for as much work as you try to do to justify your activities and to assuage guilt, he's got a good case. I know it because you've already written it down on a piece of paper. Or you haven't written down on a piece of paper for fear of some nagging guilt in the back of your mind that if anybody ever knew what was on this piece of paper, you would be ruined. But it doesn't assuage the fact that it actually happened, right? 
So, so he has a case against you, and he's going around, and he's, he's doing this night and day, accusing the brethren before God. And that's, that's an important thing to consider. So we have um, the things that we do to ourselves, and then we have um, God sort of considering all that's, that's happening, those who are violating his law, who are not bringing any righteousness, and then we have one who's pointing out um, pretty consistently the stuff that, that uh, we're doing that's bringing more condemnation and difficulty. And um, with that being said, we need to turn now to the story of the crucifixion. So I, I know uh, this morning is about the resurrection, but we don't get to the resurrection without the preceding events. And um, it's painstakingly laid, out, painstakingly laid out and documented in the Gospels in such a way that um, we can see all the elements of God's judicial system happening for us. And uh, this, is, this is an important thing um, for us to consider. So in Matthew um, chapter 27... If you'll allow me to just paraphrase some of the events leading up to the crucifixion for the sake of time. Jesus has been doing uh, ministry for uh, three years. He's walked with the disciples. He's done miracles. He's done all of the things that Peter had testified in that he was Jesus who had come. And he was testified by the Lord with many signs and wonders he did before you. And uh, he's been declaring this kingdom of God is at hand and uh, he's been sort of sparring verbally and spiritually with the Pharisees and the scribes, who are sort of the spiritual leaders of the day. And um, for this, um, he's um, earned their, their ire. They hate him. They want to kill him. That starts pretty early on. But um, they don't have any good cause to put him to death. Not, not legally speaking. He's broken no laws. And not, not spiritually speaking. And so um, eventually uh, the, plot, the plot to uh, kill him comes to fruition through the betrayal of Judas, who's one of his own disciples. And, um, and so after that betrayal, a sequence of events occurs that are, are pointing us to the, the, uh, the judicial uh, truth of God. And so here it is, um, leading up to the point where Jesus is crucified on Calvary, um, Jesus endures three trials. Um, one at, uh, the, the, in the courtyard before the Pharisees, and they're, they're trying to bring a charge, and it says there's, there's no one that can bring a charge against him. And so they're, they're trying to drum up false witnesses, and finally they, they find somebody that can say, well, he said that um, he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, and so um, they use this as a blasphemy charge. Blaspheming God. God himself blaspheming his own name. So they use this charge and they say, um, this, is, this is what they're going to do. And so they, they bring him to Pilate. Pilate pushes it off to Herod. Herod examines him. He doesn't say anything. They bring him back to Pilate. And uh, in chapter 27 of, uh, of Matthew, we see Jesus um, before Pilate. Starting in verse 11, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so, but when he asked, but, excuse me, but when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear the many things that they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge. And so the governor was greatly amazed. He, Pilate examined him privately, and uh, he, uh, he can't find any reason to, to, to condemn Jesus. 
He, can't, he even goes so far as to say, I find no, no guilt in this man. And uh, he, he, he knows that an innocent man ought not be put to death. But then we have um, this occurrence in verse 15. It says, now at the feast, because they're gathered for the feast of Passover. The feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So he didn't, he didn't think it wrong. It was purely out of envy for Jesus' authority, for Jesus' goodness, for all that he had done. This is the reason why he had been delivered up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, an important note there, while he's sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with the righteous man. That means he's innocent. The righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again asked them, said to them, which of the two men do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. But Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And they, so Pilate, Pilate's like bewildered at this point. And he said, what, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took the water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas, having scourged Jesus and delivered him up to be crucified. I, I, um, I said this before, I watch a lot of crime shows, and I like to think it's because I have the mind of a detective, not a criminal, but it probably says, it probably says something, um, something about me psychologically, but so, so I watch a lot of crime shows, and occasionally um, they'll do one on somebody wrongly, wrongly accused, or even wrongly convicted and incarcerated, and usually what happens is you, you see this tragic story of somebody who spent their life in prison, decades, sometimes dying, and then they find out later that the charges against this person were false, or the witnesses against this person were false. And uh, what has never happened in any of those, even when, when they find out that this person was falsely incarcerated, and uh, maybe they get you know, exonerated by some DNA evidence, something like that, um, they have never once said, well, because he served this much time, we won't pursue the criminal. Right? So, so, so the fact that this person had, had uh, served a punishment for a crime they didn't commit does not, does not assuage the guilt of the person that actually committed the crime. Are, are, you, are you seeing the scenario here? And, and never once has, at least in, that I've been watching, and I've watched a lot, so I feel like I can say pretty categorically, no one has ever offered to, when somebody has been convicted or rightly accused, to serve a sentence for somebody else and allow the other person to go free. Are you checking with that idea? But this is exactly what Jesus does. Is he, he puts himself in the way of all the accusations of the things that the people are actually doing. The things that we are actually guilty of. And he accepts them on himself. That's, that's what happens in this moment, in these three trials. There's, there's no actual charges that you could bring against Jesus. Right? There's, there's nothing that you could actually charge him with. He lives a sinless life, a guiltless life, and yet, he's silent before the charges, accepting them. 
He gives no response, but he could. Why does he do this? Why does he, why does he step into the line of fire, if you will? John Stott is a theologian. He wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. He has this line in it, and it's perfect. <laughs> the essence of sin is that we human beings substitute ourselves for God. So, so here we are, facing, just put yourself in the moment if you can. <laughs> you're, you're facing Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is God himself incarnate in the flesh. Here he is before you. And the spiritual authorities who are in charge of righteousness and holiness are accusing the righteous Holy One of sin. And they're, 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 they're accusing the true judge of all, the living and the dead, of of, uh, of blasphemy of, uh, of God. And so they're putting themselves in God's seat. The quote doesn't end there. The essence of salvation, though, is God substituting himself for us. See, we put ourselves where only God deserves to be, but God puts himself where we deserve to be. This, this is actually what happens with Barabbas. This, this, is, this is what happens on the cross. There's a court proceeding where the actual accused individual, the criminal, so to speak, is, is absolutely innocent, recognized by all, declared by the judge over the proceedings. See, there's no guilt in this man. What do you want me to do with him? We have this other criminal, guilty of insurrection and murder, that's Barabbas. And they offer him up, and he says, well, what, what choice do you make? And they make a judgment call. We want Barabbas. We choose the criminal so that we can put to death the innocent one, the one who is not a criminal. Jesus takes on all of our sin so that he can pay for that sin. So that, that doesn't um, maybe not sound like a particularly profound statement. So the reality of what happens on the cross becomes all the more important when you realize that it's not Jesus just taking charges and then going as an innocent man to the cross. All those words put together in a sentence are true, but, but that's not the reality of what happened. What we're told is what happened on the cross is that Jesus goes to the cross as you, as sin and bears sin in himself. How does he do that? How is that possible? What is, what is, what, and, 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 and then, more to the point, what is the implications of that? Well, the great reversal of the cross is that you are, because of sin, condemned to die. This is, this is the righteous judgment. We, we, uh, we know this because God's law says what we ought to do, and we know that we transgress it all the time, and the wages of sin are death. So we are rightly condemned. Not just for the things where we think we broke the Ten Commandments, but for all of the ways that we put ourselves in the place of God. And so, so here we are as a condemned people, a rightly condemned people, and Jesus somehow steps into our place so that he can bear our burden on the cross. So Jesus takes all of your sins, bearing the penalty for you. 
So here's, the, here's how that happens. <laughs> and here's why it happens. So we're told that Satan is the accuser who's going around. He's accusing us night and day before God. And so in the courtroom proceeding, there's always somebody who is uh, overseeing it. That's the judge. We'll get to that in just a second. But then you, you do have somebody on your side, so to speak, the, de- the defense attorney, right? And uh, he's your advocate. He's the one that pleads, pleads your case. Okay? And uh, he says, for whatever reason, why you ought not to be killed or sentenced or whatever, he's going to plead your case. So the judicial side, or the response of the accuser, is the advocate. And we have an advocate, who is Jesus. In 1 John 2.1, John says this, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. So he's giving some instructions. Not that you should go around purposely trying to break God's law. I'm I'm writing you this so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have have somebody who's before God for us on our behalf. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So then he's saying Jesus' position right now is is with God. And he's advocating on on our behalf. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then he goes on to say, and if you think that you're without sin, you're you're, uh, deceiving yourself, and you have no truth in you. So um, the point is this. We have an advocate that's before the Father, and and he's pleading our case on our behalf. And what, what is it that he can respond to, to what is absolutely true about you? How, how can he say whatever it is that he's going to hopefully say that would uncondemn you? Randy, would you come on? Sing. So there's one more reality that we need to see to make the picture complete and make the resurrection the good news that it ought to be. So that's, uh, he's, he's pierced for your transgression, crushed for your sins. This is Isaiah saying this, by his, by his stripes we're healed. How? Why? What does this mean? So the great reversal is that Jesus takes your place on the cross. And um, in Colossians chapter 2, Verses 14 and 15, it says he does it in this way. He goes to the cross fully innocent and then um, bears your sin in his own body. And then it says he cancels the record of debt that stood against us. And how it it, it says um, the, the word there for the record of debt is a legal document that says you owe life. You're, you're a lawbreaker. You are wholly unrighteous. You deserve the condemnation that that is brought on you because you've brought it on yourself. So when Satan's going around and saying, look, look, there's a failure. Look, there's a sin. Look what they're doing. He's not lying. Is that these are accurate assessments of who we are. And so the legal demand of that action is condemnation and death. But what Jesus does is it says he took that legal demand he set it aside or he he took it away is a better way to say that he he does away with it by nailing it to the cross okay now this isn't this isn't a um, 
a metaphor in the sense that one thing means another thing. The reason why he can set aside the punishment is because the punishment actually happened. He doesn't say, you're not guilty, and I'll just forget about it. He says, you are guilty, and I'll pay for it. You, you have done everything to deserve the condemnation, and Christ steps in, and by his own body being crushed and broken, he takes what was meant for you. That's how it's set aside. That's the great reversal. That's the justice of God completed. If you don't know this, you ought to know it. The last, the last thing that Jesus says on the cross is one word. It's three words for us. What's the, what is, do you know what's the last three things he says? It is finished to tell us day. It means it's completed, it's done with, and it's actually a word that means paid and full. The bill that was set against you, the law with its legal demands, that someone must die for sin. Blood must be shed. It's fulfilled. It's paid in full. That's, that's the importance of that statement. It means everything. So let me, let me wrap this up in two different ways. Well, one way, two different avenues. The first is this. Jesus doesn't just do away with all sin for everybody so everybody's home free. Importantly, the first accusation of Peter becomes all the more pertinent. It's not the kind of accusation that actually condemns you. It's the one that redeems you. He says, you're the reason why Jesus is crucified. You're, you're the one that put him to death. And it's true. Insofar as it means it's your sin on the cross. Because Jesus didn't go for anything for himself. And Jesus didn't die for the idea of sin. Sin doesn't exist out there in the ether as some thing. He died for sinners. That's you. So whatever dark, deep thing that you wrote down or did not write down or were afraid to write down, that was nailed to the cross. All right? But here's the second avenue of that. But only in so far as you identify with that death. Does that... Let me say it by scripture. Paul says it in Galatians 2 like this, I have been crucified with Christ. How were how you crucified with Christ? Because the old man was put on the cross as the sin there. It's taken and it's punished there. So that the old you, the sin you, the condemned you no longer exist. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That means the life that you're living isn't your old physical flesh-driven sin life condemned for death. It is the resurrection life of Christ. The resurrection is the important exclamation point on what happened in the exchange of the cross. It says two things. One, that the, the debt was paid. And two, that Jesus really was who he said he was, and he was totally without sin. 
The power of the law is that it exposes sin. And the power of sin is death. Because sin earns us death. And Jesus broke all of those because he followed the law and he had no sin. And therefore, death in the grave had no claim on him. But he, but he did really give his physical life because that's what demanded of you. But he's resurrected to a new kind of life where there's nothing holding it back. And that's the life that you get by faith. That's the life that you live by faith. But only in so much as you say, it was my sin that held it there. I died on the cross with him. He took what I deserve and he's paid it all for me. This is the glorious news of the cross. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus in your place so that you could be in Jesus' place. So we, we want to push the condemnation and guilt far away. But the kind of, the kind of accusation that you need to agree with is it was, it was my sin that, that he died for. And I, and I identify with that death. And in doing that, that is the essence of, of saving faith in Jesus and what he did to atone for sin on the cross. So that now, what Jesus does as your advocate before the Father is when Satan says, look what they've done. And he says, it's paid. They're doing it again. And it's covered. But only for those Romans 8.1 says that those who are found in Christ, those who have faith in Christ, those that identify in this way, there's no condemnation left for you. That's, that's the essence of that statement. Not because you'll go through life without feeling bad about something. It means that at the end of all things, it's already paid for, therefore there's no condemnation left to sentence you otherwise. The sentence has already been pronounced for those who that are in Christ. You need to hear that this morning so that when somebody says, He is risen, you say, that's the receipt for my sin. I deserve that, and He took it. And we lay down our lives for that so that we might receive true life in Him. We want to sing a couple of songs in conclusion this morning, but I just want to give you a moment to reflect on that truth. I'm not going to have you do anything like come nail that paper to the cross, but you need to know if you wrote something down and it's a sin that haunts you, you need to either be able to say, I know this is paid for, I know that it's past, and I know I might be guilty, but it's nailed, or you need to reconcile that fact that you haven't. I don't believe that there's a specific prayer that you need to pray. I don't think that I need to give you the words. I think the essence of faith is when the gospel clicks, you understand that you have nothing without Christ and you turn all that you have over to Him. And if you find yourself sort of distant from that reality, you've done it, you don't have to be re-saved. 
which you ought to come back to fellowship. So reconcile in the next few moments so that you might be able to sing in truth this morning and glorify God for all that he's done for us in Christ. Words in.